0: Hey, good morning. Thank you for joining us for a recent sermon from Harvest Baptist Church. I'm Mark Likens. I'm the lead pastor here at Harvest. We're a Bible-believing, gospel-centered, grace-driven church family right here in Atrona Heights, Pennsylvania. And if you'd like to learn more about our ministry, you can visit us on Facebook or at harvestbaptist.info. Now, I hope you enjoyed today's sermon. It's my prayer that this will encourage and equip you in your relationship with God. All right, Ruth chapter number one is where we are at, Ruth chapter number one. This is Ruth at its core is a love story of the most enchanting kind, and this is what we're calling big little love story. It's a little love story about Ruth and Boaz, but it in so many ways points to a bigger love story of God and his people and of Jesus and his church, and as we move through this story, uh, the deeper we get into it, the more you will see that. But before this can become a love story, it honestly is first a tale of darkness and confusion. Uh, We saw in the first five verses that there's anarchy, there's famine, and there's a lot of funerals. You're introduced to a family of four in verse number two, Elimelech, Naomi, his wife, and their two boys, Malon and Kilion. And by the time you get to verse number five, you've read three of their obituaries. The rest of chapter number 1, verses 6 through 22, focus on the one remaining family member. There are two daughters-in-law now, Ruth and Orpah, but the one remaining family member from verse 2, Naomi, the matriarch, this chapter centers on her, and she takes center stage. But when the curtain falls on chapter number 1, it has not yet become a love story. When the curtain falls on chapter number 1, it is still a tale of grief and despair and darkness and misery and confusion and I want to glean from this chapter this morning and I want to try to help you see what do you do when life goes bitter and some of you are in that moment right now you're in a moment where it feels like the tables got flipped upside down on my life or you're in a moment where life is bitter some of you are not there but you need to know that you will be one day uh, all of us on this road to Christian maturity will hit points in the road where it just feels like things are unfair, that it's too much to handle, that the sorrow is so pervasive that it will never go away, we all will hit moments like this. And what do you do in those moments? Or what do you do to help someone else who's going through that moment to to help them? Let's start in verse number 6. Do face reality. Verse number 6 says this. Here's Naomi. Her husband's died. Her sons have died. It's just her and her daughters-in-law now. And it says she arose with her daughters-in-law that she might return from the country of Moab for she had heard in the country of Moab how that the Lord had visited his people in giving them bread. So the impetus for them to move away from Bethlehem, the house of bread, to Moab in the first place was a famine. She hears God has visited his people. God has come and he has looked upon them. He's come to their aid. And now the house of bread is being restocked. So she's going to move back, verse 7. Wherefore, she went forth out of the place where she was, and her two daughters-in-law with her, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. So get the picture. The men are gone. Now it's just the three widows, right? It, it's Naomi, Ruth, and Orpah, uh, the 3 Musca widows They're going on their way. And they are going to take a two-week-ish journey back through the desert to Bethlehem, and Naomi has come to terms with, this isn't working. She is extremely vulnerable. She's on the margins of society. She knows she has to do something if she's going to survive. So she's going back home to her people, back home where the presence of God would be, where the uh, public worship of God would be, but also where there was a welfare system of sorts for her to survive. And all of us in moments of life, whether we're in a season of grief or not, do have to, unfortunately, come to terms with reality there is a spot to grieve there is a spot to to be in that dark hole there's a spot to just kind of lick your wounds and do nothing and have people come around you and help you but eventually there there has to be this moment where i have to come to terms with this there are times where we have to have this conversation with god god i've been wrong that's what repentance is. I'm turning away from that. I am turning the chapter. I'm going away from that. I'm moving towards you. I repent. I was wrong. I confess. Lord, I want the relationship to be right again, right? This is kind of the heart of the gospel. The heart of the gospel is that there is a, a closure conversation you have to have. You have to come to terms with the reality that your sin is not just little piddly stuff that doesn't matter, but your sin is actually an offense to a holy God, and that it's not small potatoes, it's not trivial and that that sin was paid for by Jesus. He had to die for it, and that you have to go through the low door of humility to say, I've been wrong. I confess, and I can't fix the sin on my own. I'm turning away from that sin. I'm turning away from trusting myself. I'm turning away from trusting other gods, even, and I'm trusting you exclusively, Jesus, to save me from my sin. That's the heart of the gospel. Naomi said to her two daughters alone. Mind you, they're on the road to Bethlehem. The suitcase is packed Everything they own, it's not a lot, but everything they own they got, they're headed back. And she says, girls, bef- before we get too far into this journey, she turns to them and says, go, return each to your mother's house. The Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead, meaning your husband, my boys, and with me. The Lord grant you that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them and they lifted up their voice and they wept. So this is an emotionally charged moment where Naomi turns to them and says, I love you, you've been with me, you have been kind to me, you were good wives to my boys, I love you and I don't want to part, but girls, go back home. Leave me. Go back home, go back to your people, go back to your gods, leave me alone. And they weep in this moment. And it says in verse number 10, they said unto her, Surely we will return with thee and to thy people. They wipe the tears away from their eyes, and they look at Naomi, and they say, Naomi, no, no, we're going with you. We're sticking with you, thick and thin. We, we are right by your side. Verse number 11, she turns up the heat on them. Here's what she says, turn again, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Are there yet any more sons in my womb that they may be your husbands? Turn again, my daughters, go your way. For I'm too old to have a husband. If I should say that I have hope, if I should have a husband tonight and should also bear sons, would you tarry, would you wait for them till they were grown? Would you stay for them from having husbands? No, my daughters. It grieves me much for your sakes that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. So she turns them and now she begins to implore them. Girls, go home. Girls, what are you waiting for? I have no hope for you. I I have no more sons to give you. They're gone. I'm not going to have sons. I'm not going to be married. Even if I was married today and there was a baby in my womb today, what, you're going to wait around 15 years for him to become of age and then you're going to marry him and and you're just going to stick with me all through that process? No, girls, this isn't a plan. This isn't going to work. I'm not saying the grass is green on that side of the fence, but I am saying it's better than what we got here. We don't have any grass. We have dirt. I have nothing for you. I have nothing to offer you. There is no hope. She puts that in there. If I should say I have hope, meaning I don't have hope, but let's suppose I did. Even if I had hope, it wouldn't be a plan, girls. And she pushes them and pushes them away. And here's what, here's what you'll find. Verse number 14. They lifted up their voice and they wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clave unto her. So they, they come together and they weep again. They, they are, I mean, these, these girls are so enmeshed in each other's lives. And Orpah says, you're right. Naomi, you're right. What are you going to do? Go back to Bethlehem and put your profile on eHarmony and meet somebody? That's not going to work. Even if you put your profile up, what are you going to say? Uh, widowed, bitter, uh, have nothing, destitute, and I come with a plus one and a plus one. Two other widows. Like, no one's going to date you. You're right. She goes back home. But Ruth says no. No, no, no. I'm cleaving unto you. I'm sticking unto you. But Naomi's not done. Verse 15. So Naomi says, Look, your sister-in-law has gone back into her people and into her gods. Return thou after thy sister-in-law. Now, true, false, that's not the greatest evangelistic invitation in the history of the world, right? Like, she knows when she goes back home, she's not going to worship Yahweh. She's not going to worship the God of the Bible. She knows she's going back to their gods. She's going back to the people. She's going back to the pagan practices. But she tells Ruth, like, look, you should too. Go back. Be with her. Orpah left. Follow her lead. Go home. But here's what Ruth says, and this is beautiful. It's really not the centerpiece of this, of this story, but it is the high point of chapter number 1, verse 16. Ruth said, entreat me not to leave thee or return from following after thee. Here's what she says. Mom-in-law, shut up. How many, how many daughters-in-law would like to take a page from Ruth right here? And occasionally I just want to tell them, uh, don't raise your hand. They're watching online. They'll, they'll get you. But uh, you've been there, right? Shut up. Stop asking me to leave you, Right? But I dare say, if, if your daughter in law wants to say it to your mother in law, do you want to say the next phrase? Because here's what Ruth says to her. It's beautiful. We recite this sometimes in marriages. And it's, it, the verbiage can be stolen for a, a bride and a, and a groom. But uh, really, if, if we live this out, the bride would turn to the mother in law and she would say it to her, is how it went down. And here's what she says Whither thou goest, I will go. And wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Thy people shall be my people and thy God my God, and where thou diest, I will die, and there I'll be buried. The Lord do so to me, and more also, if aught but death part thee and me. Here's what she says, I am with you. I'm going with you. I am living with you. I am dying with you. Ride or die, Naomi, here we go. And she invokes God, with God as my witness, till death do us part. I am not leaving your side, so you can stop asking me to leave your side. You can quit, stop pushing me away. I'm not going away. I'm here to help you. Here's what happens. Verse number uh, 18. When she saw that she was steadfastly minded to go with her, then she left speaking unto her. She's too headstrong. I'm not changing this girl's mind. Ruth is bound and determined to swim upstream. So so be it. Come on with me. Here's the point. You need to know, number one, if you're hurting, that you're going to have a propensity to push away help that you need. I'm not entirely sure why it is, but there is something baked into our human nature, whether it is we're just so despondent that we don't want to suck anyone else into that vortex and we're trying to think of them, whether it is our pride that kicks in, but there's something in each of us when we hit moments where we need deep, deep, deep help that we are resistant to embrace that help. And you need to know in those moments when when life goes bitter, don't push away the help. Don't push away the help from God's people. Don't push away the help from your group. Don't push away the help from your family. I understand that each of us want to be on the other side of the table where we're giving the help and we're giving the finances and we're being the blessing, but sometimes life doesn't work that way. Sometimes the way life goes is that you have to be receiving the financial aid. You have to be receiving the help. And I'm not not suggesting that you don't work for yourself and that you just walk through life with your hands, you know, palms open, constantly begging for someone to help you and that you never do anything for yourself. That's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is there are moments and situations where life turns your world upside down and you have to have the prayers, you have to have the support, you have to have the encouragement, and you're not going to make it without it. This is why there are so many commands for the church that we bear each other's burdens, that we pray for one another, right? That we forbear one another, that we forgive one another, that we exhort one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. That we provoke each other to love and to good works. Why are these commands here? Because God knew in his wisdom that we would hit moments like this. And while we have a relationship with him and we have his Holy Spirit residing in us, we also need more than that. We need relationship and community with people in the church. And we need others to come alongside us and support us sometimes. So if you're in that moment, don't feel bad. Don't push away the help. Take the help. Take the ruse in your life. Embrace them. But if, but if you're the Ruth, you need to know that sometimes Naomi's will push you away. And don't let that detour you. I am not saying that you demand to those that need help that they take help exactly on your terms and they must do this and this and this and this. But I am saying that there should be a commitment and a resolve to your family, to your friends, to your fellow church members, your church family, that, hey, ride or die, I'm in it. I'm with you. You you can criticize me. You can tell me you don't need it. You can tell me you don't want my help. But I'm with you. I'm praying for you. I love you. I want to encourage you. And know that sometimes people will stiff arm you. And don't just fall down and not get back up. Get back up and run to their aid. and, And be willing to extend some grace to them because they're hurting. And sometimes when you're hurting, you hurt other people. Know that in those moments, when people need you the most, sometimes they will stiff arm you the hardest. But be there stick with them be faithful don't give up on them i was reading it's been years ago now and i wish i remember the book and i wish i remember the author because i'd love to give them credit but i honestly don't but in the book i remember the story there was a story told about a little boy who was five years old and the author called him john it's a fictional story and john had a puppy and on friday night the puppy died went to puppy heaven and on Saturday morning, John woke up and his dad had to break the news to him that his dog had died. And John was, you know, he was heartbroken, as a little five-year-old would be, that he lost his dog. And he began to cry and, and honestly take it a little harder than his dad thought that he would. And his dad wasn't entirely sure what to do. He, he, was, he was well-motivated. He was trying to do the best he could, but it was kind of an awkward situation. And he, he didn't know exactly how to help John, so he, he looked at him sweetly. And he just kind of gave him a platitude and tried to help him and said, John... You know, time heals all wounds, buddy. Why don't you go up to your room, and and when you calm down a little bit, come back downstairs, and and we'll talk about this, and we'll try to understand it. He was well-intentioned. But John began to learn lessons on grief and how to cope with it. And he learned, hey, time heals all wounds, give it time. He learned, go up to your room, when you're ready, come down, grieve alone. And that kind of became a little bit of a framework for the rest of his life. Give it time, grieve alone. So he went up to his room and he, and he cried and he cried and he cried and cried. And After about an hour, his dad thought, man, this, I guess I misplayed this. I, I better go up there and check on him and, and help him out. So he went up and still feeling inadequate. He looked at his son and he tried to help him and comfort him. And He said, son, don't cry. We'll get you another dog. And so John kind of imported another little bit of a framework for how to grieve. Don't cry. You know, hold it in, suck it in. We'll get you another dog. Replace your losses. And that became the framework for how John grieved for the rest of his life. Give it time. Grieve alone. Bury your feelings. Replace your losses. And for much of our world, honestly, for much of our society, that's about the sum total you'll get on grief. It's about the sum total you'll get when life goes bitter. Give it time. Grieve alone. Bury your feelings. Replace your losses. But you need to know it doesn't work that way. People will say those things, and they're, they're well-meaning. They're, they're wanting to be helpful, but it's not helpful. What you find when you come to bitter moments, when you come to hard moments, there is a heavenly Father who doesn't want you to grieve alone. He tells you, cast all your care upon me, for I care for you. You'll find that you don't need to just bury your feelings, that you can take them to him, that you can come boldly to the throne of grace, and there you can find mercy and grace to help in your time of need. You find that it's not replace your losses. you can't replace some losses. Some losses are irreplaceable. And you find that you don't just need to give it time, that sometimes time doesn't heal all those wounds, but that there, there is a God in heaven and even people he's established through his local church that want to be there to help you through those difficult moments. And it's this moment for Naomi, where she is I mean, she's grieving. She's sideways. And she needs someone to be there with her. She doesn't need to go it alone. She doesn't need to go it alone, and neither do you. But you find this, if you keep reading, that you do need to make your way into, the, into God's presence and into the presence of God's people. You say, okay, if I don't go it alone, what do I do? That's what you do. And you find that so much of this text is centered on the idea in chapter 1 that they were in Bethlehem, they moved to Moab. Now they're in Moab, and they're going to Bethlehem. They're getting to Bethlehem. They're back in Bethlehem. They're back in Bethlehem. Look at verse number 19. So they, too, went until they came to Bethlehem, and it came to pass when they were come to Bethlehem. that all the city was moved about them, and they said, is this Naomi? So moved about them means that they're buzzed, that they're, they're stirred up, that they're talking, and, and that they're humming. And the collective question on the townspeople's mind is, is that Naomi? And so, mind you, 10 years have gone by. We saw that in verse number four. But they still recognize her, and that, that's Naomi, isn't it? And in verse number 20, she said unto them, Call me not Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty hath dealt very bitterly with me. Naomi means pleasant, Mara means bitter. So she says, don't call me pleasant. I'm not pleasant, call me bitter. She goes to the DMV and she wants to do a name change, right? She fills out the paperwork, and uh, the guy across the counter, uh, pleasant, right? Yeah, that's me. Um... You going with bitter? Yep, bitter. Must have been a long road. It was a long road, buddy. Change it to bitter. That's what happens. She says, "Call me, call me bitter. I'm Mara now. Why? Because God dealt bitterly with me." She mentioned this to the girls, and it wasn't just an emotional thing she said. She doubles down on it here. Says, "God's against me. God's dealt bitterly with me." Look at verse number twenty-one. I went out full; the Lord hath brought me home again empty. Not really accurate. Uh, She didn't go out full. There was a famine. That's why you left. She's not coming home empty. She has Ruth. She's new. But, I mean, it's an emotional moment. She's saying some stupid stuff. I went out full. God brought me home again empty. So why call you Naomi, seeing the Lord testified against me? The Almighty has afflicted me. So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabitess and her daughter-in-law with her, which returned out of the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem in the beginning of the barley harvest. So here's where Naomi's at good and bad. She's at an honest place. That's helpful. She's not in a good place. But because she's at an honest place, and because she's going back to God's presence and God's people, that honest place with God's people and God's presence will eventually get her in a good place. It's going to take some time, and God's going to have to work on her behalf. But she does the right thing here. And she makes a concerted effort, a difficult choice, to go back to the presence of the people of God. And what I want you to know, especially when it comes to God's presence, is that yes, God's people are here, and yes, the church is is designed to be a family that supports us in these moments. But you can't just go to your friends, and you can't just go to your church member alone. You need to start with God. And the scriptures are riddled with people who are hurting, who are worked up, who say things that aren't even theologically accurate to God, but they're willing to pour themselves out to God. You can read David's psalms, you can read Asaph's psalms, you can read Jeremiah's complaint, you can read Job's complaint, you can read Naomi here in this text. You can go all over the scriptures and find that there are people who are willing to process with God, who are willing to take their grief to God, and they don't cut God out of the equation and assume that because I'm not all put together and I'm not all pretty, and I I don't have life all figured out, then God wants nothing to do with me, but quite the opposite. God wants me and He welcomes me and He'll take me in this moment and He'll let me pour this out to Him and it's in those moments that you need to go to him. You need to pour that out to him. You need to tell him the hurt and the pain, that you're lonely, that you're isolated, that you're grieving, that you're hurting, that you're pressured, that you're stressed, whatever it is. You need to go to him and say, God, my soul can't hold the freight of my life. I need your help. I need to be in your presence. And this, we're told that we have a high priest and he can be touched with the feelings of our infirmities. God took on flesh in Jesus, and he knows it's scary to be us. He knows what it's like to to lose a loved one and to grieve and to cry and to weep over Lazarus. He knows what it's like to be misunderstood. He knows what it's like to have family forsake him. He knows what it's like to have nothing and not even a pillow to put his head on and be destitute and poor. He knows. So go to him. He's not going to give you bad advice and he's not going to be malicious or capricious. He will be a God who will welcome you, who will help you, who will hug you, who wants to hear from you in those moments. And some of you, in the last 12 months, the last two years, you've been in these moments where this Christmas was tough because you put the ornament on the tree in memory of who's not here. And you're dealing with the barrenness, and your womb won't open up, and you're frustrated. And you tried to do the right thing at work, but it didn't pan out. You did the right thing, and you got punished for it. You're dealing with the consequences of your sin. You're dealing with the consequences of their sin. Think about Naomi. She's not the patriarch. She's not the leader. The men make the decisions on her behalf, and she pays the price for it. Some of you women know what that's like. That the vast majority of hurt that has come your way has been because of the decisions of men who have been wrong, who have been evil. Dad, grandpa, boyfriend, husband. Those moments, you you have to go to God. Call your friend, do. See a counselor if you need, I'm not against that. Talk to a pastor. Process with your group at church, yes. But go to God. Go to his presence, talk to him, commune with him, pray with him. Even if you feel numb, when you're hurting and you feel numb, it's in those moments where you'd just be tempted to, well, I'm not getting anything out of Bible, I'm not getting anything out of prayer, I'm not getting anything out of church. Don't stop. Don't don't stop the rhythms, don't stop the disciplines. Go into his presence, be with his people, and get the help that you so desperately need because he wants to give it, he wants to give it. And Naomi is at least smart enough to know that she has to go there. But I would say this on the negative side, and I'm almost done. Don't lose hope. She is making some gains, she is. But at her core, she is a woman who has lost hope. This is implied to us in verses 21 and 22 when she says that, God's dealt bitterly with me, call me bitter, I'm empty, but it is explicit to us in verse number 12 when she turns to the girls and she says, look, if I should even say that I have hope, what she's saying is, I don't. If I said that I did, that wouldn't wouldn't help anything, but I don't. She tells them in in uncertain terms, life is pretty hopeless right now. Now, we're going to see this as we move through chapters 2 and chapters 3 and chapters 4, that she's wrong. She's dead wrong. It's not hopeless. She is going to have a story of grace and a story of miracles that people will talk about millennia later in church. It's it's far from over. She's, She's not without hope, but she feels that way. And when you get to moments of bleakness, and when I say bleakness, I mean like famine and funeral bleakness. Know God's there. Know God's working. Know God, he's not distant. He's he's not this goalie who let one slip by and he just didn't realize it. It's not what he is. Know that he's there and that he's active, that he wants to help you. Keep your eyes on him. Keep the hope. Keep walking in faithfulness. You have to do that to get through the valley. Hey, this is Pastor Mark again, and I wanted to take a moment and just say thank you for tuning in to today's message. I hope that the message both challenged and encouraged you from the Word of God. Maybe you're listening for the first time. I want you to know that we believe the most important decision you'll ever make is the decision to know Jesus in a personal, intimate way. To find out more about that, you can visit harvestbaptist.info forward slash gospel. If you live in one of the four counties that are church borders, Allegheny, Westmoreland, Armstrong, Butler, and you don't have a church home, then we would invite you to come and to worship with us and join in the gospel work that God is doing here at Harvest Baptist Church. Maybe you're a regular listener and God's laying it on your heart to support the ministry and the outreach of Harvest. Your gift would help us reach more people more effectively with the gospel message. If you'd like to partner with us for ministry in Western Pennsylvania and around the world, you can visit harvestbaptist.info forward slash give. Again, thank you for listening and we'll see you next time.